Welcome to The Brief. I'm John Elmer. And I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. On this episode, the October 7th military raid by the Qassam Brigades that collapsed the Israeli military's Gaza division. You had a collapsed Israeli army where nobody knew anything that was happening and is shooting crazily, trying to prevent hundreds of people from being taken captive. Hannibal, 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 everywhere you look. That's what this is about. It's clear that the Israelis killed hundreds of people. Hi, Nora. Hey, John. So this is a podcast version for The Brief and the Anti-Empire Project of an episode of Justin's Gaza War sit reps that he's doing over on YouTube that I hope people are following along with. He's been doing short situation reports throughout the week of the daily news of this ever-expanding war in the Middle East. And yesterday's show, we took a look at the events of October 7th on the heels of an Israeli media report in Yedio Aeronaut. That report broke down the Qassam raid into a minute-by-minute timeline that chronicled from the Israeli military and intelligence sources who participated in the battle that left the Israeli army broken, its soldiers captured, and turned the south of Israel into a chaotic free-fire zone. Yeah, it's sort of this is the story that we've um, we've been waiting for for these few months, the actual yeah. uh, story from the Israeli perspective of their soldiers describing being overrun by the Qassam Brigades. So if you have already caught this episode on YouTube, thanks. You're very on top of things. Um, <laughs> maybe if you've done that, you can hop over to the Electronic Intifada podcast feed and tune into our latest live stream from the other day where Nora hosted an excellent discussion with uh, Haider Aid and Ahmed Abufoul. That's right. And Shahid Abu Salama as well. And John, your weekly resistance video breakdowns are soaring in popularity. And if you already watched both of those, thank you so much. You're super fans. We owe you big time. Yeah. So let's get into this extraordinary discussion that you had with Justin. Let's do it. Let's do it. October 7th. Here we go. All right. Welcome back to the Gaza War Sit Rep. It's day 104. I've got John Elmer here. We're going to talk about October 7th and Hannibal everywhere. Hannibal, 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 everywhere you look. That's what this is about. We've all, you and, and Electronic Intifada, you know, we've all been out on a limb on uh, when we're talking about October 7th since sometime afterwards when, you know, we hypothesized that a lot of the people killed were killed by the Israelis. Of course, that was such a awful thing to say. And how dare you say such things? And so now we have YNET, this investigation, which is like a chronology. In Hebrew. By Ronan Bergman, who is the Mossad official stenographer. So every interesting story that's come out since October 7th about the catastrophic destruction of the Gaza division has been him. He was the one who wrote the New York Times story that talked about how they went into the intelligence um, hub and that they knew every room in the intelligence hub and that they had details on every single part of this operation. And then this story happens. And yeah, we have been careful, like even from the beginning, right? When they, when we were hearing about 40 dead babies, like yeah. I've been doing this work since the night, the Friday night that it happened, right? When yeah. we, I was on these, I'm on these groups already, these social media groups and was getting this information right away, yeah. watching hundreds of hours of footage over the last months. And I remember just even talking to you and saying like, I, I don't see any babies. I've yeah. seen a lot of bodies. I don't see, I've seen the morgue trucks i've seen you know like the the evidence doesn't i don't see any babies let alone dozens and then we went through the haaretz list of all the people that they listed um i i looked at it more or less just before the ground invasion so when they started adding new casualties at that point and yeah there was one there was one child i think that was like a there's one child age yeah 
so but you know there was there's th there's that approach to it which is to say the lists the lists don't match the claims but then there's also you know what max and uh aaron and, and them have done on um on the gray zone where they kind of also talk about the sources like zaka mm -hmm. and, and the the individuals that are making these claims and how they clearly made them up out of nothing um but then we have ronin and ronin's story is is fascinating for many reasons because he he takes you like like they said they minute by minute and he he ends the story at noon on october 7th yeah. 12 30 on october yeah. like yeah one o'clock on october 7th which is like the worst the worst is definitely yet to come from the point of view of the hannibal uh doctrine but i mean I don't know. Like, do you, do you, should we just go through it? Like, do you want yeah, to take let's us just through, go it? through it? Cause, cause the timeline part is incredible. Cause the yeah. operation begins at 6 26 AM yeah. at 6 55 AM. So Bergman's sources are Shabak and the IDF intelligence. So he's right. getting, and all the sources in this article are all named. They're all senior leadership. They're all the people that participated in this operation. He takes you stuff. into the war room. You're basically yeah. in the war room with these guys. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Go and on. you're in the helicopter because he has helicopter pilots. He has the person who was on the phone to the helicopter pilots. Okay. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Yeah. 6.55 AM. Yeah. The military, the Gaza division military base at Riyam is overrun by 6.55 in the morning, including the commute from the Gaza Strip to the base. They took the base in minutes. They overran these 25 plus bases and outposts in minutes. It's unbelievable. The, the level of detail in this story of how co like comprehensively they destroyed the IDF, because it, it's not just so they collapse the Gaza division, which creates all kinds of chaos because the command and control structure is supposed to run through the Gaza division in this sector, right? Yeah. So all the pilots, everyone that's reporting, like the IDF sent out a message early in the morning that said, anyone with a gun go to the south. So people all went flooding, Israeli soldiers all went flooding down to the south with no orders expecting to arrive <laughs> and get we orders from the gaza division we haven't talked about the air force yet so 6 30 they do launch two f-16s the f-16s are flying at twenty thousand feet so they can't target anything without assistance from the ground so it turned out bergman says that for about 45 critical minutes, armed fighter jets circled idly in the sky. The pilots landed at eight o'clock and learned what happened a few kilometers from them. Yeah. And by eight o'clock, the IDF was putting planes on trucks and moving them from the airfield that's the closest to the base because Kassam had taken all the way to Okafim. They had taken you, they more you territory. Know, given how little they knew, coming down and flying low in the possible, you know, some shoulder launched, some lucky shoulder launched anti aircraft missile could also have changed the image. And they of the had Air that. Force That's forever. one thing you see in the videos is that you see at, in the morning that there's parts of each Kassam fighting unit looking at the sky. They're expecting yeah. at any yeah. moment for it to come. They have anti-aircraft missiles. They're ready for a battle that the battle just never comes because the Gaza division collapses. So the IDF's command and control collapses. By 6.30 in the morning, there's no contact between the Gaza division and what they're calling the pit which is like the war room in the basement of the defense ministry in Tel Aviv, which is like where everybody goes when they, when something like this happens, like the chief of staff Halevi shows up at eight 30 by eight 30 Kassam had the entire South he held. There were helicopters already from six fifty, uh, Apache and Zik helicopters. 
but they don't have um apparently they're not they're- communicating with yeah. anyone on the ground because the command and control of the Gaza division has collapsed. Right. So what they do is they join the WhatsApp and telegram telegram groups that literally I'm on sitting in Toronto. Mm-hmm. They're on the same groups and they're being told where to target by people in a WhatsApp group, sometimes second and third hand being passed to them. And they're breaking all kinds of procedural rules here. They're talking on their cell phones, doing command stuff, which they're not supposed to do. But now they're talking on cell phones in the cockpit of the attack helicopter and getting messages saying like, we're in the third house to the left of the water tower. Right. Like that's the level of targeting. At totally insane. Uh, Babur, the holiest of holies of Israeli security, I don't know what that means, remains at a loss and rushes to browse the telegram pages of Hamas to understand what is happening in Israel. This will not be forgotten for a long time. Yeah, they're watching. They're watching the CCTV footage camera at the pit because they've lost contact with the Gaza division. So the main command and control of the IDF is watching the closed circuit uh, security camera that's up on a telephone pole at Erez, the like most symbolic exit to the ghetto. And the guys are watching on the security camera saying, Kassam is in Erez. They They hold Erez. They're sending messages to the helicopter pilots to bomb Riem military base. Yeah. The so home the of the Gaza division. The commanders ask for airstrikes on their own bases. On their own bases. So the IDF goes around bombing their own bases. And this one guy says that's in the command room, he said, all of the procedures were all thrown in the garbage. They got all of their procedures thrown in the garbage because they didn't have those command echelons didn't exist to make those calls. So it's a free for all. And it's not just, it's all procedures are thrown in the trash. And the, the Hannibal directive is for all units, tank, armor, police, helicopters to shoot at, at, that it's an open fire zone. Here's a here's a description from 832. Um, two lone Apache helicopters in the air operating on their own initiative have managed to make radio contact with the commander of one of the companies on the ground. The company commander requests fire in his favor and is granted. After the shooting, the Apache pilots point their noses toward the west and they're, before their eyes, a frightening sight is revealed. A huge human swarm of people flowing through the gaps toward the settlements of the south. Uh, in retrospect, it'll become uh, clear that this is the second wave of raiders. The pilot decides to fire two missiles and dozens of shells from the helicopter gun at the gunman indiscriminately in order to drive them back to Gaza. They identify a large breach and the crowd crossing through it. Success is limited because there are too few shells. Each helicopter only carries six missiles and 500 cannon shells. So they went back to rearm returning to base around 1020. So they fired six missiles and 500 cannon shells into... Times two. Yeah, times two into whatever it is that they saw, which Ronan is saying was two waves of terrorists. But this is not an admission that I trust Ronan on. This commander says, 9.45 a.m., carte blanche throughout the territory. There's no command and control. And because of that, their commanders are gone, taken into tunnels in Gaza. And so the the soldiers that show up to fight on these bases show up and the grenades are all locked away and they can't get into the grenade cabinet of the ammo storage because their entire system has fallen apart and they can't find the multi-layered way to open this. So they don't have access to grenades. They're all wearing civilian clothes and Bergman talks about them as so it's his sources were obviously in Shabak because Shabak comes out as the heroes in this story. They're the ones who fight for hours in their civilian clothes 
in the settlements, right? So he's he's telling you that these guys are all not in uniforms. He's talking about the soldiers all flooding down to the base in civilian cars and civilian buses, wearing civilian clothes to go down and fight. The scene that's described in this article that is like, what is it, 6,000 words? It's just yeah. chaos. It's chaos. There is no structure functioning. It's one thing to say that the Gaza division collapsed, but there's no backup. There's no secondary plan. It's not like another division moved in place with proper orders. They just fought in this chaos for because six hours. Because they're all armed. So they just. Everyone's shooting at everyone. Yeah. And then this guy. puts in their phones and they throw down. And yeah. And, and then, then the they get to these bases and they get all these new weapons. And the new weapons don't have the gun sights on them. The gun sights aren't calibrated. So these soldiers talk about showing up, being locked out of the ammo cupboards, grabbing these guns who don't have calibrated gun stocks. And he talks about shooting all over the Gaza envelope and missing all morning. That's his quote. It's just chaos, right? They're shooting at everything. And then, and then you have the Nova yeah. Festival, which is well, basically right on the road between where Kassam is going to take over this base. Can we talk about the Hannibal quote from this article? Yeah. 12 o'clock noon, he says, six hours later, the fog was enormous. The command did not understand what Hamas's goals were. And he says, the first videos of the abductees are arriving. The command understands that this is a completely different event. This is the moment. So we're talking about 12 noon on Mm -hmm. October 7th. When the IDF decides on a kind of return of the Hannibal order, he's softening it here, but he talks about the kid after the kidnapping and murder by uh, in 1986, a new secret and controversial order was introduced. The order reads immediate detection of the Hannibal incident, delay stopping of the abducting force at any cost and release of the abductees. The original order said the main task becomes rescuing our soldiers, even at the cost of harming or injuring our soldiers. According to the publications, the order was changed and softened and also renamed in 2016, but obviously it wasn't. The seven days investigation reveals that on midday on October 7th, the IDF instructs all its fighting units in practice to use the Hannibal procedure. The instruction is to stop at all costs any attempt by Hamas terrorists to return to Gaza using language very similar to the original Hannibal procedure despite repeated assurances by the security establishment that the procedure has been canceled. Yeah. All units, all sector. All units, all sector, Hannibal procedure. The next part of the story talks about they they hit 70 vehicles. They hit 70 vehicles with Apache fire and tank fire. That's the number that they are using. So if you can say, like, even if you just say there's two people in a car, we all know there's not two people in a car. Especially when they're bloating into the car to flee at a music festival, for example. They killed hundreds of people just in those 70 cars. That doesn't include the firefight that happens at the Nova Festival, which also has a mechanized IDF armored unit, a tank, on the premises. We know from other reporting that they had border police at that site as well and they also had security guards for the concert and so there's many many armed people at that point firing i'm sure kassam must have been like what the heck is going on because they did not know that the we know that the rave did not know that the rave was going to be where the rave was on wednesday afternoon and the rave started friday It's a Friday rave. So it's less than 36 hours. Neither you nor I have probably been to a rave, but uh, I gather that this is the nature of raves. It's It's not uncommon. Yeah, it's a pop-up. But yeah, so there's an article by uh, William Van Wagenen on The Cradle, How Israeli Forces Trapped and Killed Ravers at the Nova Festival. It's just from, I don't know, about a week ago. And he goes through... A bunch of evidence a bunch of articles and one of the one of the things that surprised me was that the israeli police blockaded the vital 232 road exit so 4400 people were present at the nova festival the majority managed to disperse or managed to escape but 
Israeli police established roadblocks in both directions, trapping the party goers. There's quotes from people who were there. There was a lot of confusion. The police barricaded the road so we couldn't go near Barry. We couldn't go near Reim, the two nearby kibbutzim. This is Yaren Levin. He said when when they had their first encounter with the terrorists fighting against the police that are there, two terrorists got lost in some kind of gunfight, so they found us. So they blockade the road. People get out of their car and flee flee east into open fields, or uh, or they in their cars. Many made it past the fields and hid. But body cam footage shows heavily armed Israeli police units taking up positions on the road and firing across the open field into the trees where yeah. civilians had taken cover. There was also other security guards in those trees. So there, like we have footage of the Israelis from the festival you hear exiting gunfire from them. And so they're just like, what is going on? Everybody and there's also scenes everybody. where they run to the security guards claiming, like seeing the security and being like, you've come to save me. And they're shot by and those shot security down. guards. Nova attendee Gilad Karplus says to the BBC, we pretty much knew they would probably block the road. I'm pretty sure a lot of people got killed on those roads. We drove into the field and tried to hide from them. Afterwards, we got a bit deeper into the fields and they started firing sniper rifles on us from different places and also heavy artillery. And snipers. They had sniper rifles. I would. I don't. They didn't have heavy artillery. He probably didn't know what it was. It was probably the helicopters. Yeah. Probably I mean, the there's other talk of the helicopters that was quoted in the Haaretz article about they're using the term empty your belly, which basically meant to fire all 1200 rounds of the 30 millimeter cannon that it has, you know, firing like basically like pop bottle sized bullets out of a chain gun. So they're firing a lot yeah. of ammunition and that's what they're hitting. Like the cars that are in the field are the cars that were hit. The cars that tried to drive through the field are who the helicopter gunships hit because that was a target because they didn't know who to hit. The other thing that we didn't say is that because the command and control had collapsed, the IDF believed that at each spot they were fighting, they all believed that that was the only spot that this has ha was happening. They didn't understand that there was 48 breaches in the wall and fighting at 80 different sites. They believed it was a single breach and that each commander had realized that he'd lost communication with the Gaza division, but he believed, each commander believed that that was because of the circumstance of their fight. They had no concept that it was happening all up and down the fence, which is astonishing. So it seems to me when you look at this event, this part of it, we only we've we've only gotten up to one o'clock. So there's a lot more to say. The tanks go into Kibbutz Barry the next day, and yeah, once sunset happens, sh they're shelling houses. They're shelling houses. They're shelling yeah. houses, and based on WhatsApp groups, based on targeting from WhatsApp groups who are hiding in like rocket shelters or whatever. Yeah, or some of the one guy lives in his parents' basement. It was like a classic, just like some guy who's into ham radio and, and all mm -hmm. this kind of stuff and has 10 screens in his house and connects them to the traffic cameras. He became this guy, like there's a story in the Israeli press of how he was the hero, basically coordinating with these groups because people were coordinating on their WhatsApp groups being like, we're stuck in this house in this kibbutz right now. Tell people to come and help us. And those messages were then were basically going to this guy who lived like up the road and was just watching in the morning on his multiple screens. And so he's one of the heroes of this story too, which is just the most damning level of military collapse just to have somebody in who's just a hobbyist basically understanding and facilitating how you're going to target the killing of hundreds of people. But just yeah. in the basic simple math of this situation, it's clear that the Israelis killed hundreds Most, of people. Yeah. This story stops at 1 p.m. I'm sure there's a reason for that. I'm sure the there's Kassam a raid is over that. by that time. Right. So are we talking when we have 500 and something 
civilian casualties at, at this point right now, which yeah. we know includes all of these soldiers in civilian clothes, all of these Shabak, all of these police. Mm -hmm. So what does that take it down to? And then you know that there's a couple of hundred just modestly saying in 70 cars, 200 yeah. people is a modest number in those cars. And those cars were all completely destroyed. It wasn't like people got out of those cars and lived. There's several aerial photos that I don't really even understand of what looks like cars parked in fairly neat rows and completely destroyed somehow. Yeah, but sure I think they strafed the whole rows of cars. I don't know if there's people in those cars. Maybe they just um, wanted to disable the cars so nobody could take them or something the story about the road being blocked by the police like that was just because those police for a short period of time were inside a cordon kassam had total control of the roads mm. and they had that control well into the afternoon because the mm. soldiers who report coming south they report moving into ambushes that kassam held all of that ground they held the police station they held the important uh, roundabouts so there was nobody was going to be accessing and that was the thing it's like in israeli military terms they set up a closed military zone and if people they weren't just murdering people for sport if people turned around at the cordon they weren't murdered it's people running through the cordon it's people panicking and driving out through fields and getting hit by attack helicopters. A lot of the carnage that we're seeing on that day is the result of the Gaza division collapsing and then everybody in this Israeli military and civilian integrated structure firing their weapons haphazardly at one without any objective because they didn't know what the primary objective was everybody believed that their objective was the most important thing happening they had no concept of the scale of what yeah. was happening and they didn't know what hamas was trying to do so they didn't know what they were trying to thwart even what are they trying to stop so when they finally figure it out they scream hannibal and then they start killing israelis all over the place You're listening to The Brief with John Elmer and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. Follow us on Twitter at The Brief Pod. And now, back to The Brief. Now, it seems to me that Hannibal Directive has gone from October 7th to now to be almost like the organizing principle of Israeli society at this point. So... Yeah. We heard, I mean, I remember your reaction, John. Uh, I think it was on Electronic Intifada. It might have been on one of our broadcasts, but you were reacting to the proposal, the proposition of using poison gas in the tunnels. And you had this reaction where you were like, I can't believe they're even talking about using poison gas in tunnels where their own people might be. And now here we are with the mother of one of the Gaza captives saying yeah. that her son was gassed, was poison gassed yeah. by the Israeli army. Our belief in the Israeli army was far too high. Our, yeah. our esteem for them. Yeah. <laughs> and it was low, like just so people understand. when it was when super John low. <laughs> was, like, they gassed? Well, I don't even understand. Like, I can't, I'm having trouble uh, understanding what the tactical situation could have even been. Maybe they were, it was a tunnel and they just. We saw footage. It. I don't know which we saw. We've seen footage in a tunnel that looked like gas. It was piled up corpses in a way that people like fell Small. on top of each other in a way. And we haven't seen that in any other place. But that footage exists and Israel took credit for that. And when you look at that, it looks like the way people are draped over each other, it doesn't, that's not how fighters. Are you supposed to have poison gas? According to whatever Geneva convention, I'm not a big, you know, again, not a big believer in international law ex as existence or, or it's uh, any adherence to it, but. You're not supposed to have poison gas handy, right? I don't know if there's some loophole in it, but from what I understand from my reading is that <laughs> after the US put CS gas down the tunnels in Vietnam, 
that they like made amendments to the like chemical weapons rules of war and banned that in in confined spaces. Yeah. So, so I don't know. Gas. We spent remember on the same that very same show or yeah. You know, we've talked about this flooding of the tunnels thing. Yeah. What yeah. It, they're just where where are those seven pumps? What what's yeah. happening with that story that they just create these stories that get international traction they force all of us to talk about these things and they're just strictly propaganda points well evidently the poison gas wasn't strictly propaganda they gassed somebody they gassed and, yeah they've and... they've gassed it appears they gassed somebody they hunted them down and shot them yeah they've bombed multiple of them they shelled them all the way into gaza the people who are released and interviewed the captives all talk about how they were shot at on the way in their experience was being captured being put in a car mm -hmm. usually with their family driving with palestinians across the border getting shot at by apaches on the way mm -hmm. and then getting inside gaza and the one woman says like she's all freaked out and she says to the kassam guys she says like we're staying together and yeah. the, the fighter's like what and she's like all of us my family we're staying together and the fighter looks at her and is like yes of course yeah, you're staying together obviously. like you're obviously staying and she was like i thought we were going to be handcuffed to a wall in a basement and instead right. we moved in with a family and we all i never she never her kids were never out of her sight the entire time that they were in captivity and you compare that with like what the what the israelis are doing right outside right outside the same buildings where their people are being held the israelis are stripping men naked okay. in front of their children if not their children as well, torturing them in a way that everyone in that society will remember for generations to come. The juxtaposition between the two just couldn't be starker. And then, but then what I keep coming back to is like these parents, I've mentioned it in the past three videos because I can't really can't get over it. Like these parents coming out and saying, I'm willing to sacrifice my, my child, parents of hostages saying i'm willing to sacrifice my child so that we continue the war yeah uh i mean yeah i mean you also have lots of them that are freaking out saying bring my family member home like yeah. what is going on here like we don't care if you release prisoners just right. do it like bring bring the people that are captured because of your military's catastrophic defeat the onus is then not on that army to try to rebuild trust with its community by massacring families, entire extended families, and blowing up schools and hospitals. That's not restoring faith in and your right. in your state and what is going to happen which is basically what we've said since day one there's going to be a day where they actually do leave the gaza strip and Qassam is going to have a parade right. with tens of thousands of fighters and then sometime a few months some months later thousands of palestinians are going to get out of prison in a prisoner exchange that's going to look like a victory too so all of what Israel is doing is basically just like vandalizing on a human scale, right? Like just yeah. the, I don't know if you saw that footage of Shujaia today, but it's not like they flattened the entire neighborhood and you could say, look at that flattened neighborhood. Now they can militarily operate within the area. It just looks like vandalism. It's just yeah. smash buildings. They're not all toppled to the ground. There's many six and seven story buildings that would be very offensive positions for fighters to be in. So there's no military objective to the destruction. It's yeah. just like the guys who are taking the TikTok videos are in their tanks and just firing tank shells into Shijaya just firing them into the neighborhood and that's what it looks like after doesn't look like you've cleared a path for your tanks no. well a path to where i mean like you have to have something that you're trying to do to know where you're going to clear the path to right yeah. it's not counterinsurgency in that sense because you're not trying to take control of the population either you're doing something you can't say 
which is some kind of exterminist program, and you're getting the death by a thousand cuts in the process because whenever you stay in any place for a while, you get ambushed. Yeah, and then Gallant, this is Defense Minister Gallant today. If Hamas is not completely dismantled, we will not be able to live in the Middle East. Yeah. I said he something said that like again. that on your show last time, but he's yeah. just repeating it. He's saying it over and over. And then Netanyahu's saying from the river to the sea, it has to all be ours, which is just the Likud charter. That's the Likud charter. Yeah. And the, like, and Regev wait. was on BBC today. He said that Qassam, well, he doesn't, he says Hamas, but so Qassam ceased to exist as a military organization. Their battalions have been obliterated. But that's not true. It's just clearly not true. And it's and it's demonstrably not true because the day that they leave, I mean, just look at today. Yeah, they said that yeah. the, the war's over and we got a whole day of reports. Yeah. And not just uh not just Khan Yunus, but of course Khan Yunus, in, which is in central Gaza for people who remember, but in Jabalia and in yeah. Gaza City. So Yeah, in the north. Let me just do this quickly. Al Tufa, yeah. Al Tufa, mm -hmm. Gaza City. Sheikh Redwan, Gaza City, Jabalia, yeah. Jabalia, east of Jabalia. These are all separate operations. Tufa and Daraj multiple times. Additionally, again, more east of Jabalia. It's a dozen attacks in the north-north. Yeah. And then it's got to be at least a dozen in Gaza City. Uh, and those are their best fighters. You guys too. remember December. <laughs> you remember our December map just to show you the locations, right? Tufa, yeah. Yeah. Jabalia, Beit Lahia. There's been lots of fighting in Beit Lahia. That yeah. big ambush you you talked about at the last live stream in Sheikh Radwan. Yeah. Where they were watching it all on closed circuit. That was that was like a Hollywood movie. I mean it was incredible. You're seeing different screens, different views of the yeah so just to, to recap for anyone who didn't see it this is a tunnel ambush that Kassam planned in Sheikh Redwan which involved fighters above ground fighters below ground and then a commander at a third location watching on CCTV footage watching the Israeli unit come into the building they communicate on a closed telephone line the commander sitting watching a computer screen with the Israelis on the computer screen we see them talking above ground and below ground and at that third location to set the ambush perfectly then we see the Israelis go into the tunnel and drop their camera down and Kassam videos the camera from below shooting up the tunnel watching the Israeli camera drop into the tunnel and then the commander who's at the third location watching on the CCTV he sees when the last soldier goes into the building and he says take them yeah. and they come out and they fight in the tunnel and then they apparently blow up the rest of the tunnel it's an incredible operation and it shows i mean it showed just the operation was incredible but the detail of what it suggests that they have these closed lines that we've seen all through this fight now that they're on telephones on safe secure line telephones communicating we watched them use all various types of cameras um from really high quality ones to um we watched them use parking. a backup yeah a parking right. camera to set up an ambush that killed six soldiers and so you're seeing command and control in the most elaborate detail yeah. and then the whole story of october 7th is how they had that detail in their operation and on the other side you had a collapsed israeli army where nobody knew anything that was happening and uh is shooting crazily trying to prevent hundreds of people from being taken captive into Gaza, which they could have let get taken captive into Gaza, and they could have immediately made a deal, yeah. a prisoner exchange. Nobody said that Israel's only way of living in the Middle East is to create right. to create a genocide, which at the beginning of this war, I would never have used that word. Yeah. And within a few weeks of the war, it would it's ludicrous no to not word. use it. Yeah. So to think that this is Israel's only option in the world, 
is ridiculous. Uh, Hezbollah said it like you could make a multi-front like armistice agreement, gave back uh, the Sheba farms, gave back the border crossing and a port to the Palestinians, exchanged huge numbers of prisoners. And if you want to keep, you could release all the prisoners up to the commander level in an exchange and then keep the commanders and fight about whether they're going to let right. Abdullah Barghouti, you know, out of prison or if they're going to, you know, yeah. let these like bomb makers and organizers and, you know, Marwan Barghouti, who could be the, you know, could be a prime minister or president of Palestine, you know, Abdullah Barghouti, who could put Qassam back in the West Bank with his skills. Just these kind of leadership, Ahmed Sadat of the PFLP could revive the left by releasing the assassins of Riham Zievi. Those guys are, you know, legends in Palestine to rejoin the Palestinian body politic. Like those kind of discussions could happen as a second phase right. after you've released a huge number of your people who are only in Gaza because your army was defeated by Qassam so thoroughly. So, Honestly, I think yeah. that it, by watching the videos, Qassam could have taken more prisoners. I just think that Qassam was such better fighters and they came in with such a good plan that they are actually killing these soldiers who are like would have quit because they weren't fighting. They overtook them in a way and were like, okay, is that it? That Okay, yeah. we achieved our objective in four yeah. minutes. Record we now time. control this entire base. We have all these tanks in our possession, yeah. all these yeah. jeeps, all these guns, and all these soldiers who are worth thousands of prisoners. Each one of maybe. them. Maybe they are, or maybe, maybe are. Israel just completely goes Hannibal and just yeah. Hannibal's everything and everybody. But, but yeah. I've been saying your society can't sustain just Hannibal being the overriding principle. We're a no. society that the first and last thing we do is kill the indigenous people. And we do it even at the expense of killing fellow settlers. That's, I don't think that can work. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll see. It's a pathology. It's yeah, it's crazy. The concept is that they don't believe that their people are worth right. releasing Palestinian political prisoners for. Right. That's the premise of the Hannibal Doctrine, is that yeah. the release of prisoners is more harmful to the state of Israel right. than just murdering you. So what is the reason for the state? What is the service that the state renders? What's the what's the Hobbes, Locke, Leviathan social contract? What is it now? And People are not going to move back to the South. I don't yeah. see that happening. If, if I was head yeah. of the UN, I would make the Gaza envelope part of the Gaza Strip. I would give them a seaport to export yeah. and give them an airport. I would yeah. work on beginning to connect the West Bank and Gaza in some kind of legitimate way yeah. um, to prevent these other countries from thinking that destroying Israel is possible, which is what right. the whole world is watching right now. Right. And why nobody's going to go live in the south of Israel is because for all their racist talk, they actually do believe that Qassam is going to come into their living rooms. Because by constantly saying, like, they're constantly saying it's existential, they want to kill everybody, they want to kill all the Jews, da 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 And by constantly saying that, it's covering the fact that everything they're doing is just to avoid making a deal. It's all, this is, this is not an existential war. This is an alternative to making a deal that's been sitting on the table for years, for yeah. years. Yeah. Decades. And ending the siege of the Gaza Strip. Yeah. I mean, I, Palestinians tra exchange some prisoners and end the siege. And you'll have peace for ever, yeah. for indefinite. Uh, for a while. Those basic concessions that are like the lowest like to to allow humans to have their own yeah uh, to come food and go sources and yeah. trade yeah yeah you, you you nobody's saying that they want Tel Aviv 
right now. That's that's not the conversation that's happening. Although all the fighters have told their captives not to go back to but, I mean yeah to the, but like to go but, live in Tel Aviv. Don't like go the back right to the right of return, kibbutz. you know, we're getting we're getting far afield of a sit rep. But like the right of return also yeah. has never meant that Israelis have to leave. The right like Israelis have been bringing in people to become citizens of Israel from all over the world since the founding of their state. And that didn't mean that they had to leave. So like Palestinians returning to their communities and to their homes also doesn't mean that Israelis have to leave. The Palestinians, you know, for the most part, when they talk about the right of return, it's about them wanting to go back. It's not about them wanting to. Yeah. It's not a zero sum. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, Salman Abu Sitta, right? The, speaking of maps, he has a series of maps called Implementing the Right of Return. I'd highly recommend. Yeah, so, all right, I think we covered a lot of October 7th. Was there anything, What uh, is there anything left? Do we, do we have anything left to do? Do we have another, sh- is there another show's worth of material on October 7th? Or can we go back no, to... No, I think, I, I mean... Unless I would like stuff. to see what happens with this story in English. Like I, Ronan Bergman is also the New York Times correspondent. So I'm curious to see how long before this story gets into mm. the New York Times. Because it would be interesting to see the differences in the story. The Yetio story is not in English yet, is it? No, I'm, I would just machine translate, whatever Google translated yeah. for me. So. So there's always that interesting aspect of the Hebrew media. Yeah. The stories are always a little bit different and a little bit more honest. And when it comes into English, it's always a little bit, you know, a little more tailored. But yeah. the New York Times has to look at a story like this. This is the thing is that these investigations are just sitting there on a platter for these news organizations to do. Instead, they went they all at the same time tried to decide if there was a basement in Shifa Hospital. They didn't decide, let's figure out what happened on October 7th. And the one time they did was the New York Times, you know, abomination that I think will go down in journalistic history. A lot of these stories and these lies feel like the kind of scandal that's studied, you know, like that this is the lie that led to the genocide. This is the reason the genocide happened. If the attack on that morning didn't have the lies surrounding it, most of the world would have seen the attack as legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. And they've, instead of correcting the record, they've just piled on more and more. Yeah. And more things that are all tied to their legitimacy as a state. It's very... So I just wanted to show... Salman Abu Sitta's article called The Return Plan 2023. Mm-hmm. And he's got maps. Mm-hmm. And basically he shows that like where people would return to are not even the areas where most of the Israeli Jews live. And the there. envelope is even more so that way because of that all that farmland in the south. So he's talking about so the village lands that have more than 30,000 uh, Israeli Jews are shown dotted. That's where the Jews are the majority. And they are few and naturally adjacent to Jewish areas. If we repopulate Palestinian villages, we do not find any appreciable problem. In Galilee, Little Triangle, Beersheba, there's already a sizable Palestinian people ready to welcome their kith and kin. So yeah. check this out, people. It just gives you a sense of what right of return actually looks like. It's not the fever dreams of settler colonial racists. It's practical, feasible people returning to their own communities. It's about not ethnic cleansing anymore. It's it's not about ethnic cleansing. <sighs> you know, like when the Americans did what they did in Abu Ghraib, they did it to people halfway across the world. The Israelis yeah. are doing it to people who live in their neighborhood, stripping them naked mm-hmm. and as a show of power yeah creating this dynamic it's not a show of power it's not a show of power nasrallah said that in one of his early speeches he said you know it doesn't take military power no. to kill civilians no to destroy hospitals no or to 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 tell elderly men who are sheltering with their families in a un shelter to strip naked has no no connection to strength 
But Israel believes that and has sort of seared into the consciousness of everybody that that's who they're fighting. Yeah. And I mean, I do think escalation is continuing. And I've been trying to tell me what you think of this before we go. We'll, We'll wrap after this. But I've been thinking that at the beginning, people would say things like, you'll see more and more escalation from Lebanon, from Iran, etc. Nobody even predicted the Houthis until it yeah. started happening, right? Nobody nobody saw that coming. But people were saying those parties will only start really escalating when it looks if it looks like the Palestinian resistance is losing. And that's why it's been so gradual. But I do feel that there is an escalating dynamic. And I think it's probably because of the humanitarian situation. And the humanitarian situation is not letting up at all. So even though the military situation is is not is not looking bad, the famine and disease situation is looking so bad that just horrifying. Yeah. So the, so so that's that's how we're that's how we're going to end up in World War Three is because all the international community in the in the form of the West is just facilitating a famine, a famine in Gaza in this catastrophic famine 80 percent of the world's catastrophic famine four out of five and and they're not going to let that like the allies of of palestinians are not going to let that happen without a war without the war getting bigger so here we are so there'll be more sit reps there'll be more sit reps stay tuned Once again, that was a co-broadcast with the Anti-Empire Project with Justin Podor. Justin's going to post the audio as well, uh, as everybody already knows. And of course, you can watch it on Justin's YouTube over at the Anti-Empire Project's uh, channel. I think we're still going to have more on October 7th, but... Yeah, for years, decades to come, for For sure. For years to come. Thanks for doing that, John. Okay, we'll see you soon, Nora promise I'm not mad that I wasn't included. (laughs) (laughs) You can cut that out. (laughs) The Brief is produced by Pierre Loisel in Quebec. Nora Barrows-Friedman in California. And I'm John Elmer in Toronto. Our music is by Greg Wilson. Follow us on Twitter at The Brief Pod. Find us on the web at thebriefpodcast.com and support our work by subscribing at Patreon.